Hard to believe it was about four years ago, uh, just before we had a, the event at the stadium. We had that day where we did all the events in the city, uh, taking care of a lot of different things. And, and then we had that stadium event. Jimmy and I switched places the first time. Then, you know, uh, I love your pastor. Jimmy and I are, are great friends from the minute he got in town. He and I have connected. We share a common heart to see God's kingdom advance in our community. And we also love golf. And we play, we, we ha- although we haven't played together yet. We've talked golf together, but Jimmy and I haven't played together yet. That will happen one of these days. He did inspire me this week. He told me this week he shot one under par uh, for, the, for the nine, and that really pushed me when I went out the next day trying to, trying to match up to that. Uh, on behalf of uh, my wife, uh, her brother came into town at midnight last night, uh, surprisingly, and we had, uh, so she's, she's there with uh, him and his family this morning. Uh, but on behalf of Cindy and the leadership at Impact, we are so grateful and thankful for the partnership that we share with you guys in advancing and building uh, the kingdom of God in our community. And uh, we're also excited about the Habitat House that we're building together. It's making great progress. Uh, I think we've yet to see all that God wants to do with that and through that project, but it's an amazing thing. While Jimmy's been teaching here about uh, God is greater than and that whole series over at Impact, uh, we've been working on a series called Make or Break Moments. And I believe that the moments that we often think may be breaking us, actually turn into the moments that God intends to make us. Whether these circumstances, these situations make or break us often depends on the depth and the quality of our relationship with God, as well as our attitude, our habits, and the stories that we tell ourselves in the midst of our struggles. This morning, I want us to look at one man and how he handled the epitome of a make-or-break moment. He's a patriarch, and he was born with the name Abram. God later changed his name to Abraham. And in Romans 4, it says, he is the father of all of us. He is our father in the sight of God. And so I'm going to talk to you this morning about the faith of our father, not our father in heaven, but our father, Abraham. His life spans 75 years when God called him to leave his home, his country, his father's household, everything he knew. The next 25 years was a season of intense training. And then uh, that culminated in the fulfillment of a promise at 100 years old with he and his wife, Sarah, having a son, Isaac. So he has a son at 100. As it would turn out, he lived 75 more years. So he was thinking he was at the end at 100. He had 75 more years to go, and he had six more sons before he was done. So he still had lots of life to live. A good number of years into the second 75, the ultimate test came. The Amplified Version says, God tested and proved Abram. The story began innocently enough. If you've you got your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 22. It's going to be a few minutes before I get there. But the story begins in Genesis 22. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. And before we get into the story, I want to look at that word tested, because it's an important word for us to understand. In the Hebrew, it's the word nasah. Nasah. And the majority of times that that word is used in the Old Testament, it's translated proved. It can mean to test, to try, to prove, to examine, to, exa- uh, to analyze. It's the process of an authority putting something or someone to the proof or to the test. Now Moses used this same word several times in Exodus. But when Moses was using this word in Exodus, he was chastising the people of Israel because they were putting the Lord to the test. They were doing this to God. They were not sighing God. And the Bible's clear. We are not to put God to the test that way. Uh, It's disrespectful. It's dishonoring. It's wholly inappropriate. In Psalm 78, it says that when we not saw God, 
we limit God. When we not saw God, we may even vex the Holy One of Israel, is what it says in Psalm 78. Because here's what happens. When we not saw God, basically what we're doing is saying, let's swap places. Let me be God and tell you how to be God. And we've already mentioned it here this morning, but I think uh, he's been God a long time. And he's better at it than any of us will ever be. So it's best to let him be him and let us be us. Um, it also says in Psalm 78 that when we Nasa God, the truth of the matter is we are acting in rebellion against him. And when we act in rebellion against him because God loves us, a lot of times that will provoke him to act in our life. And we'll get the consequences of that rebellion. There's a story in Isaiah 7 where uh, the Lord through Isaiah spoke to King Ahaz, and he told him, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And then uh, God offered Ahaz, he said, I'll tell you what, I so want you to stand firm in your faith. You ask any sign you want, any, anything, you, whatever it is, you, you ask for it, and so that you'll stand firm in your faith, I will do what you're asking me to do. King Ahaz said, I will not ask. And then he said, I will not put the Lord to the test. I will not nasa the Lord. And, th and, and that might have sounded like the right answer. Because it's clear we're not supposed to nasa God. I will not put God to the test. But it's never the right answer if it's in direct disobedience to God. God had said, you ask for a sign. And Ahaz said, I will not ask. So note to self, direct disobedience is never the right answer. And beside that, God hadn't asked Ahaz to nasa him. God had asked Ahaz, Ahaz, ask for a sign. I'll give you a sign. I want to stand beside you. I want to strengthen your faith. Uh, and when, when Ahaz said no, Isaiah said, is it not enough that you try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of God also? And on that day, God gave his own sign to Ahaz. A virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And you'll call his name Emmanuel. So we're not to test God. We're not to put God to the test. We're not to nasa God. Now, some of you out there know your Bibles, and we just took the offering, and maybe in your mind is the thought, but wait a minute. When it relates to tithes and offerings, didn't God say bring in Malachi, bring the whole tithe into the, into the storehouse and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing you can't contain it, and see if I won't cut off the devourer if you'll bring your tithe into the storehouse? Didn't God say that? And after he said that, he said, test me in this and see. That's what he said. Same word in the English, different word in the Hebrew. That's important. This word in the English, uh, that's the same test. In the Hebrew, it means this. Prove me, but actually it's a word that means investigate it. It means check it out and see. It means try it for yourself. So when God's speaking and he gives us the challenge to test him in the tithe, he's not uh, causing us and calling us to challenge him. He's calling us to say, see what happens when you obey me. Watch and see. Try it. You'll like it. Obey me. See what happens when I do this in your life. The big difference between these two words is this. When we test God like Malachi 3 offers us to do, what we're positioning ourselves for is an aha moment. Oh, you did do exactly what you said you were going to do. It's amazing the protection, the blessing that's come into my life. On the other hand, when we're testing God like they were in Exodus, what we're looking for is a gotcha moment. God, you said you were going to do this, but this is what happened. 
So there's a big difference. It's okay for us to investigate God looking for the aha. It's not good for us to investigate God looking for the gotcha. So the principle is we don't nasa God. However, God nasas us all the time. It is the foundational way that God brings us to maturity. It's the fundamental way that God disciplines us for our own good so that we can share in his holiness. In fact, in Psalm 26, David fired up one day and said, Nasa me, God. Test me, God. Try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Our make-or-break moments are always Nasa moments, Nasa tests. They're strategic, they're real life, they're in real time, and they're proofs. Now, these tests are not so that God can see how much faith we've got or where we're at in our walk with him, because he already knows that better than we do. He's well aware of exactly where each one of us is and where we're walking with him right now. So he doesn't bring these tests to give information to him. He brings these tests into our lives to give information to us. Because it's important for us to have an honest, true evaluation. Where are we with the Lord? Where are we walking with him? What level is our faith at? And so God brings these tests to reveal that to us. One more thing before we look in detail at Abraham's big test moment. I want to address how this story begins in the King James Version. Uh, I grew up on the King James Version. I've now transitioned through the Revised Standard Version and all the way to the NIV. Uh, But in the King James Version, this story starts this way. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Words are important. Words have within them the power of life and death. Words form the basis of theology. And in this case, the translation of the word nasa as tempt is a mistranslation of a crucial truth that we have to have settled in us. We can be very sure of this. God did not come that day to tempt Abraham. God is not and never will be in the tempting business. Passage in James 1 highlights the difference between testing and tempting. James 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So persevering under trial, standing the test, makes a difference in this life. And it also makes a difference in eternal life to come. Persevering under trial and standing the test proves and reveals and demonstrates our love and our relationship with God. And it positions us for God-given rewards. So God tests and God allows tests of those people he loves. You know who he loves? Every one of us in the room. So all of us are eligible and qualified for the tests. Verse 13 of James 1 says, When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. That's pretty clear. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, he gives birth to sin, and sin when full grown gives birth to death. Temptation is not God-sourced. Temptation rises up within us. It has the power to drag us away and entice us. Temptation may seem exciting at first. Temptation always leads us on, allures us, flatters us, enchants us. Temptation always has an end in mind. Evil desire conceives and gives birth to sin. 
Sin can be a variety of different things. At the base, sin is just missing the mark. Sin is settling for less than God's best in our lives. Sin can be willful or thoughtless transgression. Sin can be deliberate or misinformed violation of God and his ways. When we open the door to sin, it never just stays where it's at. When we open the door to sin, and when we participate in it, sin always gets bigger. And full-grown, sin gives birth to death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That is the truth. So God didn't come to tempt Abraham, but as he does with all of us, God did come to test Abraham. As it would turn out, it would be the ultimate test for a parent. As it would turn out, this Nasa moment would be a moment of moments with God. And his story is an example for us to heed and to learn from. So Genesis 22, verse 1 says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Now, this is an outlandish request. Sometimes you can just read the Bible and you're just reading through and you just read through it and you just run by it. But a verse like this jumps out. And when you read a verse like this, you... It's like, you, you, it's like whiplash, like, what? what did I just read? And I want to tell you that nothing about this could have seemed any more right or any more godlike to Abraham in the moment when it happened as it does when we read it today. But here's the difference. We're reading it. Abraham heard it. And Abraham knew that voice. Abraham and God had had many conversations by this point in his life. He had no doubt in his mind who the voice was. The voice was unmistakable. But the request, sacrifice his only son, Isaac, as a burnt offering? What an outlandish thing. Abraham had the night to sleep on it. And when he woke up, he chose instant and complete obedience. Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him his two, two of his servants and his son Isaac, and we'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering. He set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up, saw a place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And we will worship and then we'll come back to you. I'm not sure what it all means exactly, but this story is seasoned with so many shadows and types of Jesus-like references. Your only son, a sacrificial offering. On the third day, an elevated place of sacrifice seen at a distance. And there'll be a couple more before we're done. What I do know is our God is the master storyteller. And he is into details. He pays attention to details. I love what Abraham said to the servants after three days of walking. He said, me and the boy, we're going up there to worship and we are coming back. He did not say, we're going up there to worship and I'll be back. You see, at this point, Abraham's the only one that knew what was actually playing out. He hadn't shared it with everybody what's happening, but I love it. Was it a faith statement? We're going up and we're coming back? Or was he still trying to figure out how it's all going to work out? Abraham was a man of faith. We don't know about his relationship with God during the first 75 years, but we do know his faith came front and center at 75. 
In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith, when Abraham was called, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. The Amplified says, Although he did not know or trouble his mind with where he's going. That's an important thing about faith. Abraham modeled a faith that was based on trust rather than leaning on his own understanding. And he did it again when he was challenging God. God came to him and said, I am your very great reward. And Abraham said, great, thanks for that, but I don't even have an heir. You know what, God? You haven't even given me a son. Great that you're my reward, but I need an heir. I need a son. Now, what's so fascinating, he's kind of speaking right to God like that, and God goes, I'll tell you what, come here, boy. And he walks him outside, and he says, look at all the stars up there. Can you count them? That's how your heirs are going to be. And scripture says that on that day, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Furthermore, Hebrews 11 says, Abraham and Sarah both acted in faith related to the conception and the birth of Isaac because they considered him faithful who had made the promise. And then at this sometime later moment, that same faith, that same choice not to be mind-led happened again. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went up together. And Isaac spoke up and said, Father, uh, and yes, my son Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them went on together. So Abraham says, you guys stay here. Me and the boy are going up there. We're going to worship. We're going to come back. And they readjust the load. And in another messianic type picture, Isaac, who's to be the sacrifice, gets the wood and is carrying the wood up the mountain himself, just like Jesus carried his cross to Golgotha. And he's walking up, and this isn't the first sacrifice that Isaac has been to, and so he's walking along with his dad, and he goes, okay, dad's got the knife, dad's got the fire, I got the wood, we're missing the lamb. Where's the lamb? And he asks his father, dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham's quick answer is that God himself will provide the lamb. Interestingly, a literal reading in the Hebrew would be God will provide for himself a lamb, which is another flash into the future of what will happen at Calvary. At this point, only Abraham knew what he'd been told. He also knew a thing or two about God. Abraham was familiar and experienced with God. He had many dealings with him at this point, with his heart, with his ways. And I think as he walked, he had to be processing that. And they're walking along, and he's trying to figure out what's going to happen. But then... They get to the place, the place that God had showed him. He said, this is the place. And now all of a sudden, this father and son kind of hike that's happening up the mountain goes radically sideways, and things get terminally serious. Verse 9, when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there, and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. Again, a passage that's just so easy if you're just reading through the Bible in a year to just read right past. Maybe it's a story you've heard your whole life and so you don't think about it. But I want to encourage us this morning. Let's put ourselves in that moment. Father and son get to the top of the hill. The wood comes off of Isaac's back and they start building the altar and they're doing all the things that they've done probably many times before. 
And then suddenly Abraham is with Isaac and now he's wrapping up his son Isaac. And then he picks up Isaac and he puts him on top of the altar. This is mind-blowing to think about. I can't imagine doing any of this. Nothing in the text suggests that Abraham was kind of like, okay, God, you watching? I'm, 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 I'm kind of playing it slow here. I'm taking a step back. Oh, come on, God, stop here. Nothing like that. Nothing in the text suggests that Abraham was even half-hearted about it. If you read the text, this is focused action. He's got that boy. He's got him wrapped up. He's got him picked up. He's got him on the altar. This is just right in the moment pushing it. What we know is the same obedience that Abraham exhibited, enforced, and endured for circumcision, he used to get Isaac on top of that altar. How did he do it? How did he do it? Elijah gave us a preview of it when he read the passage from Hebrews 11 just a little bit ago. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. Abraham had reasoned resurrection. King James says, accounting that God was able to raise the dead. The Greek word for reason means Abraham took an inventory. There was no precedent. There's no story before this time where somebody died and been raised to the dead. So it's not like, oh yeah, I remember when this happened before. It had never, ever happened before. In fact, what I think happened is Abraham's walking up the hill with Isaac and thinking about God and thinking about his ways. I really believe what happened is Abraham saw something in the future. All these images of Jesus and his death that are in this story. I think he might have even seen it in the spirit, but he saw something that he never experienced and he pulled it into his own life. He pulled it into his own experience. Some of the other facets of the inventory. His wife, Sarah, her womb had been dead for 89 years. But it came back to life. And she gave birth to a son at 90 years old. Another time when uh, Abraham and God were talking together... And God told him, I'm going to be back about this time next year. And when I come back, Sarah's going to have a baby. And Sarah was in the tent behind, and Sarah laughed when she heard God say that. Because she's thinking, I'm 89 years old. I'm not having any baby. God asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And then he said this to him, is anything too hard for God? So he'd seen Sarah's womb come alive. He knew that is anything too hard for God. Both of these things he pulls into his experience. He draws it into his day. I believe Abraham made a draw on his history with God. He knew God's faithfulness and his provision. He'd seen what God had done in his life from the time he was 75 to 100 and beyond. He'd seen the times that God had rescued him from armies. He'd seen the times that God had saved him from foolish mistakes that he'd made with kings and brought his wife back. The, the story is there. He'd seen it. He knew it. He'd been with God. And I think he made a draw. He made an inventory on his experiences with God. He had experienced God many times, walked in it many times before. And listen, I want to tell you that we can do the same thing. Our God is not somebody we're just supposed to know with our head. Our God is somebody that is right in the middle of our lives. He's involved in our everyday life, and he wants us to have experiences with him. He wants us to have those moments where, like, 
that was God in my life. That wasn't just a coincidence or that wasn't just some random thing that happened. That was God at work in my life. And as we have those experiences and take note on them, what I believe happens is every experience like that we have with God puts a deposit in our lives. And that deposit has exponential growth potential. So every time we have one of those experiences, we have a deposit, and we get a little further down the road and we run into something that seems like it's going to break us, We can make a draw on those things that we've experienced, that we've experienced with God, and pull it into our lives. I also want to say that sometimes you hear somebody else's testimony, and you hear the story of what God has done for somebody else. Listen, God is not a respecter of persons. So if you've heard something he's done for somebody else, and you get to a place in your life where you need that done for you, you can say, hey, I've heard about that. You've done that. Testimony actually means do it again. Do it again. So we can make a draw on our own experiences as well as the experience of others. We pull it into our day. As we choose thankfulness, as we cultivate a heart of gratitude towards God no matter what, I think we live connected to that deposit. And as we live connected to the deposit of our experience with God, all of a sudden life starts looking different. We're not thinking we're just making it on our own. We're not thinking that we're the ones that are figuring this out. We're not thinking this is all on us to make it happen. Instead, we keep seeing and finding God's hand at work in our lives, which then births a thankfulness in us and keeps us connected to the deposit, changes the way we see what's happening, changes the ways we act, changes the way we respond. 1 Chronicles 16 says, Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders that he's done. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Some, Proverbs 27, 21 says, A crucible for silver, furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praise that he receives from God. And when God says to you, Now I know that you fear me, that is high praise. The Amplified says, Now I know you fear and you revere me. In the Hebrew, this word for fear is a word focused on reverence. And it's not, I have given you reverence in the past, and I'm going to give you reverence in the future. This word, now I know you fear me, means you right now are actively walking in a reverential relationship with God. You right now are walking in a way that acknowledges you know that I'm God. You are submitted to me. You're joyfully submitted to me. You're walking with me. You're following me. You're living in the light of my love. And Abraham had demonstrated the highest allegiance, love, devotion, and submission to God. His faith and his trust were on full display. But one of the things I think is so powerful about this moment, and happens with us too, sometimes you get to do things and you do it in front of a bunch of people to show your faith and to show your trust. But I'm telling you the most powerful experiences with God, the ones that make the deepest deposit, are those things that we do for an audience of one. Those things we do when nobody else is watching but God. And in this moment right here with Abraham and Isaac, there's nobody else there but Abraham and Isaac. He's not doing this to be seen by anybody. He's not doing this for the praise of any men. He wasn't doing it thinking, they're going to read my story in the Bible one day and be encouraged and inspired by this. No, he was living it in real time. And his faith and his trust was demonstrated before an audience of one. I believe Abraham touched God's heart that day. And I'm telling you, when we make choices before an audience of one, that honor God and that honor his ways, we have the power to touch his heart too. Jesus one time said, 
We serve a Father who sees in secret. And He rewards those things that are done in secret. God doesn't miss a thing. And we have the opportunity to touch His heart with our obedience as we follow Him. There'd be a sacrifice that day, just as Abraham had told Isaac, God will provide a lamb. Verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. In the Amplified it says that Abraham looked up, glanced around, and lo, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket. And with this new instruction, Abraham broke his focus and looked around. He is locked in. He's wrapped up Isaac. He's laid us in the... What was Isaac doing? Was Isaac panicked? Was he in fear? Was he freaking out? Was he, Dad, wait. We don't know. We don't know. We just know Abraham was locked in, focused. But Abraham had done all of that. Raises the knife. And then God says, Abraham, Abraham. Yeah, don't harm the boy. Don't harm the boy. Now I've seen that you fear me. Now I've seen that you will trust me. With, and you'll even, you are even willing to give, sacrifice your only son. Look back behind you. And Abraham turns around, and there in the thicket behind him is a ram. Now, most of the time when the sacrifices happened, it would be a lamb. A young lamb was the traditional thing that was sacrificed. In this case, it's not a lamb. It's a seasoned ram caught in a crown of thorns around his horns. Again, God himself will provide the lamb. It's another picture of a day that was yet to come. Until that moment. Abraham hadn't seen it. Isaac hadn't seen it. Nobody'd seen it. We don't know how long the ram had been there, caught in the thicket. Abraham was so locked in and focused. When God spoke again, it caught his attention, changed his focus, and he saw something he hadn't seen before. I love it that Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. You'd think in the natural you could call it the Lord has provided because of what God did in that moment. But the fact that he called it the Lord will provide is important because I think it speaks to an everlasting truth that transcends the moment. Yes, in that moment, God did provide. But listen to me. Whatever moment we face from this day all the way to the end, our God will provide. He is faithful like that. He is, that's who he is. It's, even when we're faithless, he's faithful because he can't deny his own name. In the original language, it's, it's even richer. The self-existent eternal God who sees... The self-existing eternal God who sees the Lord will provide, sees to it. The self-existent eternal God who sees, sees to it. We don't have a God that's just seated on the throne, sitting up there waiting for the end to come. We have a God that is actively engaged in the world, actively engaged in our life. He sees all things. Nothing escapes his gaze, and he is a provider. He sees to it that we have the things we need, to this very need. Uh, to this very day, his provision is around us. His grace is sufficient for every need that we have. It's always present. It's never in short supply. The issue is, will we engage? Will we make a draw upon that grace? And that exposes our faith level. Will we live with an active faith? Or have we just checked the box of faith? We believed, and we'll believe again. No, we want to live in it every day, actively revering and honoring God with all of our lives. He's worthy of a people that will live that way. Hebrews 11 says, And without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who would come to him 
must believe that he is and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Again, the Amplified, those who earnestly and diligently seek him out. That's how we position ourselves for the rewards in this life and in the life to come. This describes purposefully, intentional, engaged, searching for God. Investigating, craving, pursuing. All of it's part of a lifestyle worship. I love the way you guys sing. I love the way you worship. Uh, I, I'm, I'm At Impact, we sing and we worship and we go after it. And when I come here, I feel like we got the same heart. There's a worship thing among us. But listen, that's not just Sunday stuff. That's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday stuff. We need that every day of our life. You need it in the morning. You need it in the afternoon. You need it when you go to sleep at night. It's a lifestyle of worship. It's not just something we do one day a week that God calls us to. And that's what diligently, purposely seeking after the Lord involves. The Message Bible adds a unique perspective, too. It says it's impossible to please God apart from faith. And why? Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe both that he exists, and this is an important thing. Not only does he exist, but he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. Again, we don't serve a God that's disinterested. We don't serve a God that's just a spectator in our lives. We serve a God who is actively involved in our lives every day. And all the more so for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, which is something he told him before, and then it also got upgraded, and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God loosed a generational line of blessing from Abraham's obedience that flows to us today still. We're still in the downline of one man's obedience. And he took God at his word all the way to the end. And the blessing that comes from that is still flowing to us today. I think we miss and undervalue the importance and the repercussions of Simple obedience sometimes. The last thing Abraham and Isaac heard the Lord say that day, because you obeyed me. Because you obeyed me. In the King James it says, because you obeyed my voice. In the Amplified it says, because you heard and obeyed my voice. In the Hebrew this word for obeyed means to hear it intelligently, to understand, but also with an attention and an obedience implied. It describes understanding and application. This is hear and do obedience. This is not being just a hearer of the word. This is about being a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. Because the bottom line is we can talk about what we believe, but what we do demonstrates what we really believe every day. What we do with what we've heard is what matters the most. Jesus told a parable one time, and he said, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And the son said, I will not. But later he changed his mind, and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. The son said, I will. But he didn't go. Jesus asked that day, which of the two did what his father wanted? 
And the answer was the first. Listen, sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we miss the moment. God tells us to do something and we miss the moment. I've got a good friend that says we never fail the tests of God. We just get to take them again. So this first son, go work in the vineyard. No. But he changed his mind and he went. And that counted as obedience. The son that said, yeah, I'll go, but didn't go, didn't count as obedience. When Jesus got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about a situation. He said, you will be blessed if you hear these words of mine and you put them into practice. If you hear the things that I'm speaking to you and you put them into practice in your life, that'll be like building your house on a rock. Now, he also gave another option. He said, you can hear these words and not put them into practice, and that'll be like building on the sand. The common thing that happens, whether you're building on the rock or the sand, is the storms of life come. The testing comes. No one's exempt. Tests come in all of our lives. But whether we're building on the rock or building on the sand shows up by what happens on the other side of the storm. If we're building our lives on the rock, on the other side of the storm, our house is still standing. If we're building our lives in the sand, on the other side of the storm, it's gone. But you get to start again, because we have a God who loves redemption, and he loves new beginnings. And so you get to start again. Genesis 22:19. Then Abraham returned to his servants. They set off together to Beersheba, and Abraham uh, stayed in Beersheba. Just like he had said, Abraham and Isaac went up. And I suspect that on the other side of finding that ram and that sacrifice, I suspect whatever worship they had planned to do that day went to another level. I mean, come on. Your son is up. You got your knife. You're about to kill him. Yeah, you know God can raise him from the dead. Doesn't even say Isaac figured that out. He had no idea. But all of a sudden, nope, there's the ram. There's the sacrifice. I, I think they had a hallelujah moment right there. I mean, I, there's just no way that was like... Thank you, God, for the ram. No, it was like probably everything that they had in that moment, their whole life changed. And just like he said, they went up, they worshipped, and they came back, and then with the servants, they set off for home. Our spiritual father, Abraham's life, an example, is full of hits and misses. He did some things really well. He also royally messed up some things. But the constants through all of it was two things, the faithfulness of God, and number two, the faithfulness of a man. The faithfulness of a human being, the faithfulness of a man named Abraham who trusted God. His faith was tangible, it was real, and in the midst of a variety of make-or-break moments, that same faith that was credited to him as righteousness that day he believed it when he looked at the stars, that same faith won the day over and over again. I think few of us, if any, will be tested to the Isaac sacrifice level, but count on it. We will all be tested. When those tests come, they may feel like too much or too great or too hard or too whatever. But that will never be the truth. God's promise in 1 Corinthians 10 is that we will not be tested beyond our ability to endure. And I'm telling you, God knows us better than we know ourselves. Sort of like the coach, you're running laps and you think, I don't have anything left. He says, take another one. I don't have anything left. Take another one. I've gotten to the point in my life when I feel like I'm at the end of it and the test comes, it's like I take it as a compliment because God sees something in me I haven't even seen in me yet. But his promise is we will not be tested more than we can endure. And when the test comes, two things happen. He will show us the way to stand up underneath those things that are trying to crush us down. And he will also reveal to us 
the exit strategy out of it. That's a promise in 1 Corinthians 10. And we can believe it just like Abraham did. James 1 says the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work in us so that we can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Peter wrote that our faith is of greater work than purified gold. And he said, tests come to prove our faith is genuine. And when that happens, that results in praise and glory and honor as Jesus Christ is revealed. So when the test comes, recognize it's a test. Beep! This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. You are now in a test. Recognize what's going on. Engage your faith. Make a draw on God's grace. Step into the moment with him. Be as quickly and as completely obedient as you can be. Stay humble. Stay reverent. Stay teachable. Stay focused. There is no test that comes into our life just randomly. When a test comes into our life, it's there on purpose and it's on time. We might not think we're ready, but God's opinion matters more, and he does think we're ready because he's allowed that test to come. And on the other side of these tests, we'll discover that the moments that we thought were breaking us are actually the moments that are making us. On the other side of these tests, we realize that our minds are being transformed and renewed to see and view life and to view God and to view people and circumstances and situations in whole new ways. On the other side of these tests, when we look at ourselves and others look at us, they go, you look more like Jesus than you did a little while ago. What happened? Oh, I just sat around and had an easy day. No, I've been going through it. But I went through it with God, and now I end up looking more like Here's, the, here's one of the things that I've learned. Whatever you look at the most, you start looking like. So when you're, when, you're, when you're trying to get free from something, if you think, I want to be free from that, I want to be free from that, I want to be free from that, you're going to end up being just like that because that's what you're looking at. No, turn and look at Jesus. Walk to Jesus. Fix your eyes on the author and the perfecter of your faith. No matter what's going on, and watch and see him bring you into more and more of his image. On the other side of these tests, when we allow ourselves to be trained from our lives, will produce a harvest of peace and righteousness, and God will be honored and glorified by that. Once you stand together, if you need prayer, the elders are going to be here at the front. We've got one more song Raymond's going to lead us in. If you've never given your life to the Lord, listen, today's the day. You didn't show up here on a rainy Sunday morning just by accident. God got you here today. And he's got a plan for your life. Maybe you're going through a test right now. One of the mistakes that we make when we're going through tests is we just get quiet, hunker down, and think we've got to do it by ourselves. That's a good way to fail a test. One of the lessons that will help you pass tests is when you're being tested, let some other brothers and sisters be with you. Let them be in it with you. Let them be, you know, there was a man one day, he, he couldn't get to Jesus no matter what. He's a paralytic. And besides that, the crowd was all around. There was no way to get there except he had four friends. Four friends couldn't get through the crowd, but four friends said, you know what? Let's go up on the roof. Let's cut a hole in the roof. Let's take our friend up there and we'll drop our friend through the roof to Jesus. And that man who couldn't get there got there because four friends got him there and he walked out healed that day. Listen, if you're going through a test, don't go through it alone. Let someone stand with you. It's not embarrassment. 
to go through tests. We all go through tests. Look at the people around you. Every person in this room will be, is, and will be even more tested. That's just the way it works down here. So there's no embarrassment in it. Own it. Let others walk with you through it and watch and see what God will do. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in all of our lives. I thank you that you're a God that loves us enough to not let us just stay in immature places. But you are fully committed to us becoming mature sons and daughters of the King. You're fully committed to conforming us to the image of your Son. You're fully committed to transforming us by the renewing of your mind. And you're fully committed to walk through any circumstance, situation, or test we face with us, with us, to strengthen us, to support us, and to loose more of your life in us. So Lord, let us live in a way that brings you honor. Let us live in a way that brings you glory. On the days that are going good, let us just be super thankful for that. So on the days that it's hard, we got something to draw on, to pull us back into that relationship with you. Father, speak your blessing on this church, all that they set their hand to do in faith. Continue to prosper it and bless it beyond what they can think or hope or imagine. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.